0: Happy Labor Day! (laughs) When I was growing up, Labor Day, to me, meant a long weekend, a day off from school. Most likely, my aunt and uncle and cousins from Owatonna, Minnesota, would drive to our home in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, for a weekend visit. Barbecuing and frisbee and jarts in the backyard, possibly a visit to the miniature golf course, Hanging on to the warmth of the Midwestern summer with the knowledge that fall was just around the corner and that the first snow even may be less than a couple months away. I didn't think about the labor in Labor Day all that much, except to know that just as I had school off, my dad would take Monday off too from his job as a farm machinery salesman and that my mom would take Monday off from selling Fuller Brush or Parents Magazine door-to-door. It was a time in the middle-class neighborhood in which I was raised of the five-day work week with weekends off, and a general sense that jobs were available for me in the future when I reached the age of official employability if I was willing to take what was available while I looked for what I wanted. Now I know that this was not the outlook for everyone, even back then, but just describing those feelings, those shared expectations for even a segment of the population, from the vantage point of our current economic climate, it all seems remarkably quaint, impossibly remote, even dreamlike. We are most decidedly in a new normal when it comes to labor, though our political leaders in their feigned commitment to kitchen table issues and their relentless if fruitless attempts to revive the American dream render themselves powerless to address it. In fact, the word labor, the very word, is barely spoken in public discourse anymore. Rather, we hear about the stock market, small businesses, Job creators, though rarely much about the jobs they create. Unemployment figures, quickly moving toward full employment. But does anyone really believe that? Consumer confidence and sales figures. What happened to labor as a group, as a force, as a movement? How did Labor Day even become... A national holiday? Well, it was President Grover Cleveland who signed the law in 1894 to make Labor Day a federal holiday. And he did it because he was such a good friend to the labor movement, right? Because of his strong commitment to worker rights? Not so much. He did it actually as an attempt to appease some of the anger that arose after he had ordered federal troops to Chicago to quell a strike by the American Railway Union at the Pullman Palace Car Company. Workers were protesting their wages being cut by 25 to 30 percent while there was no reduction in the rent they were forced to pay in the company town or the prices they were forced to pay in the company store. You load 16 ton. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Was Cleveland concerned about the plight of the workers? Uh, no. The president was concerned with the fact that the strike had spread to other states, disrupting mail service and interstate commerce. The New York Times of July 9th, 1884, reported that General Miles, commander for the assembled troops, issued orders to shoot any person caught in the act of blocking the highway of interstate commerce or of destroying railroad property used in the carriage of United States mails. President Shields, This is also from the New York Times article. President Shields of the local American Railway Union sent a telegram to Illinois Governor Matthews saying that the troops were shooting down people promiscuously without provocation and asking the governor if something could not be done quickly. The governor replied, Have sent state troops to restore order and to protect the lives of law-abiding citizens. Rioting and lawlessness must be suppressed. Citizens who obey the law have nothing to fear from the federal or local authorities. Never mind that the New York Times in that same article had already reported an innocent victim, a man named Charles Fleischer, who had gone to the tracks having been told his son was watching from the outer ring of the crowd to bring him home to safety. Acquaintances said he was not taking part in the strike, but had crawled up on a boxcar to get a better view to find his son, where he was shot and killed by authorities. Once again, as has happened throughout history up to and including the present day, damaging property and the disruption of commerce is called violence. And the murder of individuals by authorities is called restoring order or keeping the peace, or protecting the lives of law-abiding citizens. The government force ended the strike within a week, but at least a dozen people were killed in the process, writes Francis Romero for Time magazine in a piece entitled Top Ten Things You Didn't Know About Labor Day. At least a dozen people were killed in the process. And most accounts put the number at 30 people killed and 57 injured. And that word injured hides the real lasting damage done, including amputations of legs. The injured. That would tend to make people a little angry. So President Cleveland, mindful of his image and looking toward a future reelection campaign, made appeasement a top priority, so labor legislation was rushed through Congress, and the bill to make Labor Day a federal holiday passed just six days after the strike's end. Happy Labor Day. Why bring up this disturbing history when we are just trying to enjoy a holiday? Really, Reverend? You want to bring us all down? No. I don't, but I do want to remind us, remind myself of history. Remind myself where we have come from so that I can see more clearly why we are where we are and can maybe understand a little more about what it will take to move toward where we want to be. I do want to remind us of another instance of that truth underlined in the reading that power concedes nothing without a fight and that furthermore power will gladly take back anything it has been forced to concede if no one is paying attention or caring or protecting the rights that have been won, right? It's not only that the people have to fight for it, but that we must be ever vigilant about keeping it. Whatever it is, worker rights, women's rights, civil rights, voting rights, what's right is rights. Power will concede nothing without a fight and will gladly take back what it has conceded if it sees the fight has gone out of us. It's no use blaming power. That's just what power does. Unchecked power, power without accountability, power that is insulated from the ramifications of the policies it puts in place, power that is isolated from the people it is meant to serve. We must be willing to fight, not with violence or with hatred or with selfish aims, but with moral clarity and courage for the values and principles that we hold dear, for the values and principles and people we hold dear. Because you see, it is not so much that labor has vanished from the national dialogue, but that the laborers don't seem to matter, the people who work. Sure, some representative of a narrative friendly to a particular politician's campaign is rolled out most every campaign season, but there is not a consistent focus in between elections on what is really happening to the working lives of everyday people in an ever-changing global economy. Now, it's complicated to address. I get it. It's not a simple thing to figure out, but I'm talking about a stubborn and longstanding lack of focus on workers and those who are looking for work. I'm talking about a lack of attention to a fundamental part of being human, finding and keeping work that is meaningful and sustaining and rewarding in some manner or measure. I'm talking about a moral failing among the leadership of this country that we, religious and ethical communities, people of faith and principles, houses of wonder and worship, and practitioners of walking the walk of justice, that we are called to name and address. It's not only an economic issue. It is a moral failing and a clear betrayal of the values we espouse. The Pullman strike affected hundreds of towns across the country, though many churches of the time sided with the owners and supported the president's decision to restore order. Beware of those euphemisms. There were some ministers who proclaimed their support of the American Railway Union and the workers' strike. In Billings, Montana, an important rail center, a local Methodist minister, J.W. Jennings, compared the Pullman boycott to the Boston Tea Party. And he attacked Montana state officials and President Cleveland for abandoning the faith of the Jacksonian fathers. Rather than defending the rights of the people against aggression and oppressive corporations, he said party leaders were the pliant tools of the moneyed aristocracy who seek to dominate this country. Let me say that again. Party leaders were the pliant tools of the moneyed aristocracy who seek to dominate this country. Jeez. Does that sound familiar? Money controlling politics? The attorney general serving during Cleveland's presidency, who was authorized to handle the strike, had been a railroad attorney and continued to receive a $10,000 annual retainer from the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, which was a bit more than his $8,000 salary as attorney general. Do you think that influenced him at all? So yes, we are in a new normal, but some of the same dynamics are in play that have always been in play, and they call for a similar, if stronger, response from the people. So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival led by Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II and Reverend Dr. Liz Theoharis, grows out of this same understanding of cycles of injustice occurring and recurring. Fifty years ago, they write, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. and many other leaders launched a poor people's campaign to tackle the pervasive problems of systemic racism, poverty, and militarism. By many measures, these interrelated problems are worse today than they were back in 1968. And if you add in climate change and ecological devastation, the urgency Is even greater. All of these are intersecting forms of injustice, and the rights of people to organize for basic worker rights and living wages and respectable benefits is right there in the mix. You see, contrary to the stories being told and the images of people sponging off a broken welfare system, I believe, generally speaking, that people sincerely want to. Work. People want to be of use. Most every person who receives help from the discretionary fund asks, is there anything I can do for you? Is there any work I could do to give back to the congregation? But when the jobs that people have do not pay a living wage, when working conditions are unsafe or un. Pleasant When labor is devalued or degraded, a feeling of despair and futility is bound to follow. Listen to a few facts collected by the Poor People's Campaign about our very own state of California. 55% of people in the state, 55% are poor or low income a total of 21.4 million residents. From 1979 to 2012, the income for the top 1% grew by 190%, while the income for the bottom 99% decreased by 6%. Over 134,000 people are homeless in the state. I would say over, 6.4 million workers make under $15 an hour in California, 42% of the workforce. Working at the state minimum wage, it would take 118 hours of work per week to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Now, I don't know what market they were in, but being around here, we know what housing is. Not surprising, but scary. Something is wrong. And to the extent that we have allowed our collective voice on behalf of labor to be silenced, to the extent that we each have tried to slice through the net with our beaks so that we could escape individually without worrying about the whole, we have failed to address what is wrong. In the words of Reverend Barber, this much is clear. Our nation is in need of a movement, not just a moment. We are in need of transformation, not just transaction. We need change, not charity. It is a national call for moral revival grounded in our principles and our mission. In response to claims of banks and corporations too big to fail, we respond with a commitment to actual human beings too precious to ignore, too beautiful to dismiss, too worthy to discard We must be willing to fight not with violence or with hatred or with selfish aims, but with moral clarity and courage for the values and principles that we hold dear. For the values and principles and people we hold dear because we know that love is the greatest power to sustain a fight for what is right. We must fight. We must be vigilant. We must stick together. There is power in a union. There is power in knowing we are with and for one another. The strongest bond of human sympathy outside the family relation should be one uniting working people of all nations and tongues and kindreds. And this nonviolent, multiracial, intergenerational family of workers just may rise up to break every chain of injustice in the land. Workers, unite, happy Labor Day.